The overall vision for the brand is to be culturally focused and culturally conscious. What that means is actually focusing on preserving the cultures of Africa and making sure people understand that Africa isn't a monolith. And that goes down to the fabrics and the textiles that we're wearing. When you say African print, that literally makes no sense because there is no one print that defines an entire continent. Welcome everyone to episode two of the Paul and Pals podcast. I'm your host, Ponyboy Paul. And Paul and Pals is a podcast where I interview my creative pals to learn how they became who they are today to inspire you for tomorrow. On episode two, I have a creative conversation with my pal Toyosi Shusi. She's the founder of the Shusi Fashion Line, which is a culturally conscious lifestyle brand. Now, I don't know about y'all, but starting a fashion line is pretty dope in itself. But what makes Toyosi's story even more interesting is that she's doing all this as a DACA recipient which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the United States immigration policy that covers children that were brought to the country illegally. We also discuss how she basically created her own major in college, and as you heard in the intro clip, while referring to a piece of clothing as African print literally makes no sense. But without any further ado, let's get creative. Let's get creative. Let's get creative. Before I start this interview, I just want to give a quick disclaimer that some parts of this episode were kind of cutting in and out due to the poor Wi-Fi, but no worries, I've taken the necessary steps to address this for future episodes. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> hey! What up, what up? Hello. How you doing? How you doing? Good. Can you hear me while everything's good? Yep, I can hear you. That, that, that. Yo, appreciate you. <laughs> Appreciate you joining. So as I did, I know like I did like a little, you know, intro for you, but I kind of first want to start by asking you like how you doing right now? How's COVID treating you? How you living? COVID has been interesting. Um, I'm kind of upset with how Texans are acting though, because they're really acting like we're back to normal. Since yeah, I'm we started this phase reopening, and it's like, nah, y'all, like still wear your mask, still be social distancing, but they don't really care. I feel that. And um, so you mentioned Texas. So where are you at right now? Where are you living at? I'm in Austin. Austin, Texas. All right. So I'm going to let you do the little intro um, about how we met. So I think we were talking about it. We didn't even, we couldn't really remember the exact moment, but, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll, I'll let you start. So let's just do a quick intro about who you are, all, all that. Oh, cool. Right. So I met you when I was interning for Shell in 2016. So um, I, I was in at that time. So like Houston is home, obviously. Um, so we met at some point during this internship, but I don't remember the exact moment. Um, but yeah, from there, we kind of just kept in touch, but I guess a little bit about me and my background. So I worked at Shell, which in the case of like, I wasn't always doing fashion this entire time. Um, so I went to UT, which is why I'm in Austin and I actually studied oil. I actually studied chemical engineering. Um, but while I was at school, I kind of felt like I needed a creative outlet outside of engineering and I was just really limited to what I could do with engineering. So I actually decided to um, focus in textile engineering, which like, I don't know how your program worked, but like we had to like declare a focus area Mm -hmm. when we had our major as chemical engineering. And so like, I've always been interested in textiles and like how that works. Cause when I think about fibers and fabrics, like we've been making these the same way for hundreds of years. And so I was just interested to see like, what the future of textiles was. So I started like 
learning about um, flame retardancy or elasticity, things like that related to textiles. But I also had taught myself how to sew during the, my sophomore year of college. And so I had this interest in also like being creative and making things. And I decided to actually take some sewing classes in college. And then from there, I figured out that like sewing was really something that brought me joy and it was a passion of mine. And just making fabrics that, or making garments that really like related to my identity as like both a Nigerian, but also being an American. So like, I feel like I exist in this like flux space where my parents are Nigerian, I was born in Nigeria, but I grew up in America. And so when I identified with my culture, it, it like kind of shuffles between the two. Um, when did you move to the States? I moved to the U.S. when I was two, but we like moved around to Atlanta, Philly, New York, and then we finally settled down in Houston. Gotcha. Yeah. And just to go back, you said your major was chemical, but you focused in textile within that? Yeah, like, exactly. Okay. And like that didn't exist, so I had to like petition the dean and explain that like we actually have this entire department at school that actually focuses on textiles and apparel, so I had to explain how it related to chemical engineering and Eventually, they let me do it. Wait, so it didn't... Wait, hold up. <laughs> wait, so it didn't exist, but you just said, yo, I need this focus. Yeah, it didn't exist. I wasn't interested in anything that they had already laid out for us, so I kind of charted my own path. Word. So, and I guess that's one thing I was always curious about because I always knew you from chemical engineering. I knew you were oil and gas, but, like, has fashion always been a part of your, like, I don't know, interest? Or was it just, like, a college thing where you wanted to express it via fashion? I think it like came to fruition during college, but I'd always been interested in fashion just because like when I was growing up and I think about the way that we consume fashion in Nigeria, like a lot of the things are bespoke or like you make it yourself. So you'll go to the market, you'll pick out the fabric that you want, and then you'll find a seamstress or a tailor, give them the like sketch of the design you want made for you, and then they'll make it for you using the fabric that you've chosen. So like I've always had an interest in like making my own stuff, but whenever that was happening, like whenever my mom would like <laughs> send these sketches and ideas to our tailors in Nigeria to make me things to wear. I like never actually liked how they look. So I, was, I just came to the point where I was like, just give me the fabric. I'll learn how to sew and I'll just make it myself. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, okay. And uh, one interesting thing, I don't know if you already kind of touched on it briefly, is that we met um, during the internship at Shell, right? But mm -hmm. do, do you currently work at Shell? No, I don't work at Shell. Oil and gas is definitely like, in the past at this point. <laughs> I work for Accenture doing marketing and brand management. Marketing and brand management. And I guess, um, I guess you're gonna kind of talk about it with the whole DACA thing, but was it at that time, was, was Shell kind of like your, I'm gonna go in oil and gas, or you kind of knew it the whole time that I wanna do something that's kind of different than what I'm doing? No, so, I I never thought about pursuing fashion full time or like actually being serious about it. I just always thought it was going to be a hobby. Um, but when I like decided to major in chemical engineering, I knew that like, like, okay, so the way that I work is like, I just always go for the best. So I knew that I wanted to do engineering. So I was like, okay, which engineering do I want to do? Um, my interests are in math and science um, and I like chemistry. So chemical engineering made the most sense. And it was also like one of the most lucrative majors. And then I was like, okay, what's the top university for chemical engineering? And UT was one of them. And then I was like, okay, what's a good internship if you major in chemical engineering? And like, I think at that point, Shell was like 
in the Fortune 10, Fortune 10 company. And so I didn't like know that I wanted to work in oil and gas, but I knew that I wanted to be successful. And so Shell kind of just made the most sense. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up there. But when I was in the internship, I didn't like it like at all. And I went back for two years and I was just kind of doing it because it felt like the right thing to do versus like what I actually wanted to do. And also yeah, there's just like, obviously like that parental pressure to work in oil and gas, be an engineer. So I never really like define what I wanted for myself. I kind of just did what other people expected from me. I feel you. And uh, kind of like, what's the update on the shoe C line right now? Because I mean, I don't really know all that goes into like fashion designing and all that, but like, I guess, have you been doing it more because of COVID? Cause you kind of like not been able to go out or you kind of been more focused on your actual nine to five? It's kind of a mix of both. Um, I, since I am working from home, my home has now become my office, but also my studio space. Um, and so I, I, I'm literally staring at like my dress form, but also staring at my two monitors that I have in my living room. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm doing right now with Shusi is I already have all of this fabric and materials that I've been using for the clothing line. So I'm actually using it to make masks. I know that there's like a shortage right now um, with access to masks for not just like healthcare workers, but also just the everyday person that whenever they're going out in public, they want to wear a cloth covering over their face. So I've been making masks and I've actually been using the proceeds from the sales to donate to a food drive fund that my family in Nigeria is running. So my aunt owns a catering company there. And like, obviously that Nigeria is also in lockdown, but when you think about how COVID affects countries that aren't just impacted by the number of cases, they're impacted by the lack of access. Um, there's a lot of people that depend on daily wages for like food and resources. And so now the country's locked down, they don't have access to getting any money. So my aunt has been actually using her catering staff in her kitchen to um, pass out food to the community there. Okay. That's, that's dope. You got a lot going on. And yeah. um, I wanted I wanted you to touch in on this a little bit more too is um for people that don't know, what is a what is a DACA recipient? Like what is that? Like what aspect of that does that really touch? Yeah, and I think I to tell that story I need to like go back to like right, my, back. Yeah, my immigration story. Um so like I mentioned, I was born in Nigeria, but we came I came to the US when I was two. And I actually grew up in a pretty mixed household. And like, what that means is they were US citizens, they were green card holders, they were visa holders. And I didn't really realize that um, I was undocumented until I was in high school. Um, so it was when I was actually applying for college and I was like, oh wait, if I try and go out of state, I'm gonna be considered an international student. And like, to, like things were not adding up at that point. And I just grown up thinking that my parents were really like, um, protective but really they were trying to you never uh, had that conversation up to no we never had a conversation like they just let me live life not knowing but at the same time like I couldn't get a driver's license I I couldn't get a job and again I just thought that I had overbearing parents but that wasn't the case like literally they were trying to protect me from getting deported (laughs) wow Uh, yeah um and so that was 2012 when that happened. In the summer of 2012 is when I was going to, you know, start looking into going to college and looking into, like, what options I had. And that's when I figured out that, hey, not only will you have to, like, pay more to go to these out-of-state schools, you also um, don't have access to, like, FAFSA or a lot of scholarships. And I was like, okay, well, I can't even afford to go to college at this point. I kind of, like, given up hope. But that same summer is when the Obama administration had announced the executive order for DACA. 
And DACA actually stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it's basically an immigration program that allows people who were brought to the U.S. before a certain age and have stayed here continuously for a certain number of years, don't have any felonies um, or misdemeanors, and then there's other requirements. It allows you to, um, one, get a social security number, which is huge because that gives you access to so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also allows you to get a work permit. And so that allowed me to, you know, get a job and work legally. And it, most importantly, it allows you to um, avoid, it, it defers you from being removed. So I have protections against being deported because of it. But it's a temporary program in that it only is valid for two years. So every two oh, years, okay. I have to renew it. Um, so that right. was, ha- yeah, so that's what happened in 2012. But it also, like, gave me the opportunity to finally go to college. It gave me the opportunity to qualify for merit-based scholarships. It gave me the opportunity to get a driver's license, get a job, and yeah. It was definitely an amazing program that changed my life, the course of my life entirely. Because if it hadn't happened, like I literally don't know where I would be right now. Got you. So you found out, let me do the math real quick. So you found out in 2012, and have you had to re- or renew it every two years since then? Yep. Yep. So every two years I have to renew it. There's a $495 application fee. There's a application that you have to fill out every year. I have to go and get my biometrics done. Like there's all of these processes that are in place that I have to do every year just to prove that I should be allowed to stay here. But you have to keep in mind that I'm doing this renewal, but it's never going to lead to permanent status. So yeah. I'll never bring card, I'll never become a citizen with this current program. And I, and I think that's what, that's what I'm trying to understand, because I mean, I'm not asking, I'm, I'm aware of the program, right? So like, being that you currently are working on, you know, a work a visa, I would assume, right? Yeah, I work primarily. So, and I know, obviously, your company understands that, but since you're renewing every year, but you're not renewing towards permanent residency, Mm-mm. is there, I guess, what's the game plan? I, I can't have a game plan. There's there's too much there's too many factors right now that are outside of my control. And unfortunately the US immigration system is really broken and I there is no path for me to become a citizen unless I get married. So you know if there's anybody in the comments and hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, drop a wedding ring in the chat. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's honestly one of the few paths that I have. Or I can decide to leave the country and try and reapply. But if I leave the U.S., I get banned for 10 years from coming back. So I can leave, try and reapply, and there's no guarantee that you get a visa. And if you think about what Trump is doing right now, Nigerians can't even get in and, like, get a green card or apply for visas right now. So it wouldn't even matter. Dang. Yeah. 10 years. That's steep. So I guess you don't oh, be wow. going out for spring break, huh? You be, <laughs> you be <standing. laughs> Then we got Mandy saying, how much is the price? I mean, the dowry's still high. The dowry's still high. <laughs> hey, this is Mandy food. All right, that's, that's crazy. So then I guess one thing I also, because I think what's, I think I also kind of take it as a privilege because obviously when I, I moved here, you know, my dad won the visa lottery. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like a path to permanent residency where you knew eventually you're going to get citizenship, right? And I kind of don't have that fear of like, oh, I can never do this, but like, I guess, how is every day? Are you always thinking about that? Or are you just kind of just living life like how you can? Um, it's definitely always in the back of my mind. There's no way I can ignore that, you know, that's the reality that I live in. But I also have accepted that it is my new normal. Um, but like, in addition, like, when Trump became president, when he's obviously had a lot of xenophobic, you know, policies that he's been pushing forward and 
just an onslaught, a vendetta against immigrants. Um, but one of the policies that he promised was that he would actually end DACA. And technically, DACA has been ended. So it ended in 2017 when he came into office. So what that means for me is that, or me and people like me, is that one, there's no more new applicants. So there's a lot of people who have heard about DACA and they were waiting till they turn um, a certain age to apply for it, but now they can no longer. Um, but for me, luckily, there have been, there's been a lot of pushback from local courts and state governments that are saying that, hey, this system has been in place and it's benefited like 800,000 people. So it doesn't make sense for you to now tell them that they've been doing that. You can't just take it away from them. Like you're taking away the livelihood at this point. And so the, there's a lot of battles in the lower courts and eventually it's gotten pushed up all the way to the Supreme Court. So there was a Supreme Court hearing in November to decide if DACA is actually constitutional. And we're waiting right now to see if they're going to make a decision. They're, they actually make decisions every Monday and Thursday. So like every Monday and Thursday, I'm always checking to see, you know, is this going to be the moment? And going back to that November, I think I, rem I remember randomly seeing on your story, like you were, you were somewhere in DC. I don't know exactly where, but like, can you kind of like refresh my memory on what happened? Yeah. So when I found out that I had DACA, I, I, for one, definitely felt like I was alone. There's definitely a narrative here that it's a system that only benefits like Hispanic people. And it's, there isn't a diverse narrative about who actually benefits from it. Um, and when you look at the numbers, like you guess, like over half the people that benefit from DACA are Hispanic or Latino, but there's also a population that's white. There's a population that's black. There's a population that's Asian. Um, and I didn't recognize that this wasn't a problem that was just affecting me. Um, and so I actually came across an immigration advocacy group called Undocu Black, and they, they advocate for black immigrants, whether it is undocumented black immigrants or immigrants that have TPS status or immigrants that have are refugees or asylum seekers. So I came across Undocu Black, I joined their network, um, and it's basically a coalition of people all over the US. And we have, um, we basically have different um, chapters in each city. If you have a large enough, like, a large enough um, community in that city, or you can join work virtually. And so they had put a call out to get people to um, come and rally in front of the Supreme Court and actually sit in on a session during um, the DACA hearing because they wanted to make sure that Black faces were represented, they wanted to make sure that people understood that this isn't just a problem that affects one kind of person. So they invited me to join them at that Supreme Court hearing. And we basically participated in the rally there. We, you know, we're loud and proud and we show that, hey, we're not, we're undocumented and afraid. That's basically the same that we've, we've adopted. Um, and we want to make sure that the Black narrative didn't get ignored. So that was the focus for that. And within that, like there are some amazing people in that network. I don't know if you guys remember when um, 21 Savage was in detention because we found out that he was actually a UK yeah. <laughs> yeah, immigrant. So Undocu Black is actually the community that helped him get out. Oh, really um, But yeah, so something else that we did is we actually got to join the press conference with Nancy Pelosi. We got to meet Chuck Schumer and just really tell our stories and talk about the expectations of what we need. Um, so. Yeah, we got to talk with the top, the top heads of Congress. Top dogs. Yeah, so we don't. We don't we it's like crazy because there's so many citizens that don't even get that opportunity. So like the fact that I did. Dang, you ain't even a citizen. That's why. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. To, oh, we got some questions coming in. 
I'm going to start it up. Uh, first question from the boy Carl. Terms of, nah, 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 nah. Well, that's long. Yeah, hello. Can you read the whole thing? No. I'm going to um, read it long. <laughs> hold on. How did you go about switching careers from Shell to Accenture in terms of did you need to gain an experience slash jump through any loops to get started? No, I didn't. So Accenture recruits engineers because they are looking for not a specific skill set, but the way that you think. Um, and so when I was recruiting with Accenture, um, the way that like the recruitment process works is that there's actually a case study. And so you kind of just have to have a base understanding of like business acumen um, and different solutions I can propose in those six cases. So I didn't have like a really huge learning curve when I was switching from Shell to Accenture, but a lot of the learnings that I like took out of my internship with Shell, I'm able to apply to Accenture. I think the biggest switch is that I started with consulting in Accenture and not in marketing, and I knew nothing about marketing. So that's probably been the biggest area where there's been a learning curve, but there's definitely been like trainings I've been able to take while I've been there to like help me come up to speed. Okay. Does that answer your long ass question, Carl? <laughs> And once again, if y'all have questions, I don't know if there's been any questions in the comments, just send them in via the uh, little question question feature right there. Uh, one question I thought about as you were talking about Accenture is like, you know, with the, I don't know how the work visa set up. Is that something that is kind of like, kind of taboo to discuss with your manager? Is that kind of like, is that is that HR reaching to you out? Like, hey, it's been two years, like, what's up? Yeah, it's definitely HR that reaches out. My manager, I mean, they might know, because my status technically says non-resident alien, which I hate the term alien um, when people talk about immigrants. <laughs> Did you lose me on my back? No. You good? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wi-Fi yeah. camera? I bet. Okay. Um, so there is a lot of sensitivity around it, but like when I was interviewing, one of the questions that they'll ask you is if you need um, sponsorship now or in the future and again like it's a very weird question for me to be able to answer because since DACA is something that's renewable like technically the answer is no but now we're in the situation where like DACA is canceled so like I kind of need to be sponsored if it goes away forever so I, I couldn't really answer that question but I I was upfront like I've always um felt like I needed to be upfront and honest about this because I felt like if I like tried to hide, if there was ever a situation where I was in trouble, I wouldn't have someone to go to. So I definitely yeah. felt like it was important for me to be honest, but HR will definitely be on your back about getting your visa renewed. Like they emailed me at the beginning of the year and my thing doesn't expire until the end of this year. So and yeah, they're on it. They said, uh, we ain't trying to catch a quick case. <laughs> no. <laughs> I got another question from the one day, nice and short. <laughs> yeah okay how do you keep your creativity flowing for juicy that is a good question um so i think for my creative process i am someone that like doesn't focus on the end result i like really enjoy the process of making clothes i like the process of you know designing and when i think about my design process like a lot of times i start with the fabric so if i i didn't even explain what juicy is but Basically, I officially launched my brand in 2017 after taking all the sewing classes in college because I felt like I had a unique voice and perspective to bring to African fashion and African like print or African inspired prints. Um, so I start with the prints first. 
So I find things that I think are really cool or I find prints that I, I think are unique. Um, and then from there, I kind of like let that dictate the silhouettes or the styles that I end up creating. Um, and to keep my creativity flowing, I definitely look to other creative sources, but I try and steer away from like looking at a bunch of like fashion and runway shows. I like listen to music, I'll watch short stories or short films and things like that. I kind of get inspired by what I see and the emotions and the stories that are being told there. Um, but the overall vision for the brand is to be culturally focused and culturally conscious. And for me, what that means is actually um, focusing on preserving the cultures of Africa and making sure people understand that Africa isn't a monolith. And that goes down to the fabrics and the textiles that we're wearing. So like when you say African print, like that literally makes no sense because there is no one print that defines an entire continent. There is a, a, a continent that's made up of many different textiles and prints. And so I've kind of taken a step back and I've actually moved away from using a bunch of like Ankara fabric and actually using the textiles that are specific to regions, specific to ethnic groups, specific to countries. So like what I'm wearing right now is actually um, one of my pieces and it's like a hand dyed fabric that's hey. made by, <laughs> that's made by, <laughs> yeah, it's a hand dyed fabric from like the Yoruba tribe called Adire. Um, and so I kind of start with like understanding the history and the context behind that fabric. And that also inspires the creativity that, you know, results in the in the garments that I make, if that makes sense. Right. Hopefully that uh, answers the question. <laughs> yeah, another one from uh, Little Bro. What up, Peter? Do you have any advice on finding what type of job or industry you'd like to work Man, in? Man, why don't you ask me that, bro? Like, what? <laughs> Yeah. He doesn't care about your advice. Really. <laughs> hey, bro. All right. Um, I think you should. Okay, so I'm actually reading this book that kind of talks about how a lot of times you get overwhelmed because there are so many options out there. Um, and so I think you just have to focus on like narrowing it down to like maybe five or six industries that you're interested in. Like, don't really think that you can be out here doing everything. Like, you really got to narrow it down to those five or six. And then from there, like, you kind of have to just take stock of, like, okay, your, your interests. And then from there, I think you can, like, really pick what you want to align with. Yeah, was that, was your Wi-Fi going right now or was that me? I'll be checking. I don't know. You love pause. Oh, word? Dang. It's quiet. I got too much, I got too much going on. Mm -hmm. But uh, you might want to redo that question real quick, just in case anybody missed it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So my advice is, like, to narrow down your options. Like, don't, yes, people tell you that you can do everything and anything, but that's not true. So, like, actually pick things that you could actually do that are feasible. Um, and then from there. Those are your basics. Hey, what's wrong with Comcast, bro? <laughs> They gotta relax, man. Y'all mean. I'm, I'm sorry. For um, I'm sorry. That's fine. That. That's fine. I just said narrow down your interests. Like, don't think you can do everything. And then once you narrow down those interests, like, see if there's any way you can test out, like, in small ways, what they align with. Or talk to the right, talk to people, schedule coffee chats. Like, LinkedIn is your best friend. Like, talk to people in the industry. Back, back. Good question, Peter, but uh, let's talk after this, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got another question, though, from my cousin, Michael. Ah! What am I? <laughs> I do not. Uh... I do not speak. Why would you expose me like this? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you look dumb now, bro. You look dumb. No, I don't speak fluently. I can, like, understand it, 
a little bit. And I've been watching a lot of Nollywood films, so that's kind of helped. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. I'm going to take that one off. And hold on. Oh, I forgot to actually mention, I don't know if people at the beginning missed it, kind of going back to uh, Shusi. Um, yeah, so I wanted to give a shout out to you for um, the little giveaway you wanted to do. So just mm -hmm. for the people that missed it, we're going to be doing uh, two winners this time. And she's actually willing to give out some of her um, uh, fanny packs that she made. I don't know if you have them right next to you to show real quick, but um, yeah. are you ready? I do, stay ready. All right, so there's this one, and I can actually talk about this. So like this fabric here is inspired by Kubo cloth. Kubo cloth comes from the Congo. Um, so you see like all of these geometric shapes. This is just um, a digital print, but it, it is inspired by that cloth. And then this one is Another fanny pack, but it's inspired by Kente from Ghana. Bad. That's fine. So once again, if you're uh, watching right now, all you need to do to be um, eligible to be in the raffle or whatever is after um, tomorrow night, I'm going to put some questions up from the interview. And if you were paying attention, uh, you know, just answer the questions. It's kind of funny because <laughs> people got to chill. Um, <laughs> It's actually funny because I was looking at, I was actually very proud of the responses to the last episode. Like people actually paid attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hope the same thing will come from this one because I think it's been going pretty well. Uh, Thank you, Olubisi. Uh, she's just trying to, no, nah, she's just trying to um, win, a, win a free one. <laughs> just slide in. And then uh, one thing I kind of want to ask too, as you kind of get towards, towards the end is um, what, I guess, What's next for you? I know we already kind of talked about like, there's really no game plan for the whole DACA situation, but I guess like for Shoe C and all that stuff, I feel like that's something that you kind of, I'm assuming you have some big plans for. So what, what you got cooking right now? Yeah, yeah, um, And I can talk about like what I've actually done with Shoe C. Like, um, so I launched a brand in 2017 and 2018 is really when it like took off. Um, I didn't really have any industry expertise. I didn't really know how the business of fashion worked. I didn't speak the like fashion language. And so I kind of learned a lot in 2018. But 2018 was also like a whirlwind. So a lot of things happened. That was when I first started doing runway shows. And I did a show in Austin that was actually for like a competition for emerging designers. And I actually ended up winning that competition. And then from there, I think that really helped validate me in the eyes of a lot of external people because ultimately like fashion is still a very superficial industry. And so you kind of have to, people kind of have to want your stuff because they see that other people are interested in it. Um, yeah. So like that ultimately did help push the brand along. I've been featured in British Vogue. I've done shows in like Houston and uh, um, Houston and Dallas. And I've been asked to do shows in like New York and London and Paris, but again, because of the DACA thing, like wait, I hold can't, up. Like, you I just can't wait, hold on. You can't just quick flex that, like, wait, hold up. So you've been getting requests to go to other like just big yeah. show? Yeah, yeah. I get, lots, I get lots of requests, but I just like I one, I, I literally can't travel to do that. But I also like wasn't set up to handle the amount of like um band like requests that were coming in like i've i've carried some of my stuff in like museum gift shops so i'm able to like have small quantities um and i've done things with like nike and the cfda i was actually asked to do a fashion show during essence festival but like one of the requirements was that i was able to donate 100 
pieces, but I, I, I don't have the <laughs> capacity yet to get to scale myself up there. So when you ask me like, what's next for Shusi, I want to make sure that the next time, like I come forward and like present my brand to the industry, I'm ready to actually handle the like capacity and the requests that come in. And I want to make sure that like, it's quality. It doesn't feel like, you know, just handmade stuff yeah. that I'm making at home. Like I really want it to be professional. And so that's just going to take time. And for me, that, <laughs> and for me, <laughs> and for me I, I, I feel like I, there's so much more I can learn about fashion. I, I definitely think that there's a lot of value in learning on the job, but I think there's a lot of value in formal education as well. So I'm actually looking to go back to school to get a grad degree in fashion, but with all this okay. Okay, second degree things. <laughs> and somebody said one of the air shoe seeds dropping. <laughs> That's crazy. And like, kind of going back to like, you weren't able to, you know, give them the request of 100 pieces. Where are you making your stuff? Is it all in home? Do you have like an actual shop? Like, well, how do you do all that? Yeah, so before COVID, I had a factory that I was working with. They're actually based here in Austin. Um, so I was working with them on my some of my pieces, but I actually have a few seamstresses in Nigeria that I work with. Um, so I, it's cheaper to get things made there, but there's also the issue of quality control. And so I try and have my patterns and my samples made in the U.S. so that I can send it abroad. So I know that, hey, these patterns are already fit and, grit and graded, like marked to the different sizes correctly. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like such a half job. Literally, all you guys got to do is sew it and I give you the fabric and then you send it back to me. And then how are you getting, are you just like straight up shipping it in bulk or are you kind of having like family that are about to travel and then you give it to them or how's that happening? So that's what I was doing at first, but like now it, the quantity is so big that I just have to ship it. I use like DHL and stuff. Hey, okay, making money, woo, that's fire, <laughs> bro. On another one. Cool. And then going back to the, um, yeah, I'm going to say, um, going back to the, um, the inventory and all that stuff, like, is your, how big is your team in America? Like, like what kind of help are you getting? I mean, the, the team is just me, but like, I have freelancers that I work with. So I'll have illustrators that I work with. I have, um, there's a thing in fashion called a tech pack. So fashion is very technical, like it's creative, but most of your time isn't going to be spent sketching and drawing and sewing. Your Most of your time is actually going to be spent creating these tech packs, which are basically the blueprints to create the garment. So I have someone that I'll hire to create the tech packs for me. Um, and then I have people that I will hire to make the samples, but like the core team is just me, myself and I. But you know, as we grow, we'll be hiring. Hey, hey yo. That's amazing. I mean, that's very inspired. I mean, I ain't got nothing physical I'm making, but it seems like the key, especially from last week's episode, is to find some people in Nigeria and then have them do all the work for you. <laughs> yep, they're lucky to plug. And also, like, Nigerians are really hard workers. And when you just think about, like, the... Well, one, for me, I want to make sure that I'm employing people over there. Like, that's important to me that, like, I think when a lot of us come to the States or are born here, we kind of forget to give back. And so it's just really important to me that if there's any way that I can give back, I should be giving back. And one of the ways that I do that is, you know, by employing people there or having people actually, you know, create the textiles that I'm using for. And, yeah. That's dope. And uh, I don't want to get uh, too into your personal situation, obviously, with kind of what you mentioned earlier. But, like, 
what what are your parents' thoughts on everything? Like, are, do they know everything that's going on in your life, or like, are you uh, just? I guess what's the um, relationship like there? Um. So I didn't tell my parents that I was starting this brand before I did, um, because I knew that they would discouraged me from doing it like even me switching from working at shell to accenture like they weren't happy about that like obviously they think that oil and gas is like the most stable job you can ever have but look at it now um but so i didn't tell them about fashion because i knew that they would be hesitant and not that supportive and i knew that i had to like kind of show them that i could do this first before i got them on board but since i started they've definitely been my biggest advocates like one of the reasons why i want to go back to grad school is because it was a suggestion from my mom um and they're definitely really supportive of where it's going right now and i think because i am using the family name like i can't fail you know? yeah yeah that's how i'm gonna say that's, i feel like they would definitely be aware of that at some point so like yeah word and i'm gonna start uh starting to wrap it up so I guess um, you kind of dropped a lot of gems along the way, but um, what do you feel like is one thing that, you know, that motivates you and you feel like people should be aware of? Ooh, that's a good question. So I am motivated by uplifting ignored communities. Um, and I think that's twofold with like my DACA story and that, a lot of times black immigrants get ignored from this narrative. Um, and so I just wanna make sure that if, if me, you know, coming forward and telling my story allows this experience to be more humanized, I know that that's ultimately going to help aid with the resolution that, you know, is gonna come. So that's important to me, but also with fashion, I wanna make sure that I'm uplifting the communities and the text, like the communities that are actually producing these textiles, like the preservation of culture is like super important to me. I definitely feel like there's been a lot of conversation around cultural appropriation and we're not really addressing, addressing it well. And the cultures that are actually being appropriated don't get to speak up or don't get to um, talk about, you know, what's important to them and um, share the history behind it. Um, so for me, I just wanna make sure that people understand that there's value to things that are coming out of Africa, like African fashion can still be considered luxury, can still be considered contemporary. Um, and the processes behind how we make these garments are so intricate that you should understand the value behind them. So I definitely feel like uplifting those ignored communities is super important. Right. And I think obviously a, kind of going off what you said, a big thing to uplifting is having people have the resources to do it. And, you know, when you think about resources, money is a very big thing, right? So, like, how do you spread that wealth? So I want to ask you, like, at this moment, do you feel like you're profiting from Shusi in the way you want to? Or are you still trying to make, you know, certain stuff? You ain't got to tell me all your money, you know, uh, all that. But, like, how is that working for you? I mean, so for me, like, I'm not at the point where I'm going to quit my full-time job. Like, obviously, I need my full-time job to pay for Shusi. So that's kind of why I'm still in this role. Um, so like, no, I'm not at the point yet where I feel like I'm making enough profit to quit. But I also think that, um, I don't know, you have to know what your goals are and my goals aren't hitting a certain dollar amount. My goals are, are having a certain reach and making sure that people like can understand, um, what they're wearing. You want to get more, like, more about, you want to get more of your message out, not necessarily like 
oh, I'm going to reach a million, a billion, like all that stuff. Yeah, and I also don't want to scale to the point where I need to be producing large quantities because I there's a, definitely a conversation around sustainability and environmental aspects around the fashion industry because after oil and gas, fashion is the second largest contributor to pollution. So I don't want to scale to a point where I'm like, producing as much as like your Ralph Lauren's or your Gucci's and your Louis Vuitton's because they're not good for the environment. So that's not important to me. Oh, <laughs> you said it ain't Ralph though. <laughs> but I mean, that's, I mean, I think everybody has their own goal. I think that's probably the less popular uh, sentiment people say. Like if you're, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people like, you know, at the end of the day, if you get into business, the goal is to make money, right? But right. I think um, one thing is when you start to scale up, you're going to lose that quality that you initially started with. So it's really like, what are you willing to give up versus have? So, I mean, it's, it's honorable that you're saying that, but at the end of the day, it's whatever really you want from that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we got about 10 minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'm trying to wrap it up. Um, I think you kind of already gave your motivation goal. So one thing I want to do, I want to just thank you once again for um, uh, being my second guest on my second episode I know it wasn't, I don't know how you kind of felt nervousness or whatever, but I think it went pretty well. And I just want to appreciate you for willing to give out just not one, but two of your uh, shoesy fanny packs. Yeah. So uh, we all just drop a quick uh, horse emoji for a heart. Thank you for coming on the show, Toyosi. And uh, I want to wish you all the best, uh, just not in your career and your, um, you know, your fashion line, but, you know, just in your, in your life. You know, I know you're going through a situation that most of us aren't, in that right now, it's not something that we think about. So I really do wish you all the best and uh, I do hope that everything works out. So um, once again, thank you for joining. I'm gonna wrap it up with the, with the game. Okay. I appreciate you. Bye. If you enjoyed this creative conversation, I would appreciate if you did at least one of the following three things. One, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to leave me a rating and a review too if you have the time. Two, follow at Paul and Pals on your social media of choice, but ideally Instagram, so you can tune in live every other Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern to participate in the conversation and potentially win a raffle prize. Three, share the word. People tend to take the referral of a friend or family member seriously, so if you know of a friend or a family member that would also enjoy these creative conversations, send them a link to an episode. Lastly, If you're interested in coming on the show to share your story, please feel free to reach out to me via social media or send me an email at paul, that's P-O-L, at paulandpals.live. And who knows, you might just be the next pal that I interview. But without any further ado, remember to stay creative. Stay creative.